What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This summer, click into cordless power with Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds looking fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear leaves and debris with the 40-volt leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at the Home Depot and on homedepot.com. How doers get more done. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Movie Crush. Charles W. Chuck Bryant here, uh, Friday interview edition, and I just had a great conversation with Michael Ian Black, uh, one of my comedy heroes, because he was in a little sketch comedy group called The State, uh, a show that really meant a lot to me and was very instructive for me when I was in college to see people my own age um, getting a show on what was like the coolest network, uh, MTV at the time. And it was just so goddamn funny. And everyone went on to do amazing things. Uh, You also know Michael from uh, Stella, uh, from Michael and Michael Have Issues, from uh, Viva Variety, from the uh, NBC sitcom Ed. He's been busy over the years, Wet Hot American Summer, of course. And we talked a little bit, too, about his new book, uh, A Better Man, A Mostly Serious Letter to My Son, that I cannot recommend more. Uh, especially if you're a parent. It's a really, really sweet book. It's a quick read and uh, just a wonderful, wonderful... You see a side of him that I think you don't normally see, uh, which is just super sincere and sweet dad uh, giving advice to his son about life. It's really, really great. So I highly recommend A Better Man. Uh, So the conversation went great. We talked about uh, his... Um, second pick, his first pick was Miller's Crossing, but we've done that. So he went with uh, Flirting with Disaster, the great, great um, kind of bonkers comedy from David O. Russell, his second film, one of my favorite movies as well. And we had a great conversation about it. So here we go with Mr. Michael Ian Black on Flirting with Disaster. Uh, how is it up there in uh, Connecticut? Good? You know, I guess so. It's a little snowy. Oh, yeah? Just a dusting of snow. Do you like that? Sure. 
I like, I like snow up until the point where I have to do any shoveling and then I don't like it at all. But once the shoveling is accomplished, then I like it again. Gotcha. Uh, I was kind of, and probably shouldn't have been surprised to learn that you went camping by yourself not too long ago. Mm -hmm. And I grew up camping and I just, it didn't seem like a Michael Ian Black thing to do, which is probably a dumb thing for me to think. Wasn't a Michael Ian Black thing to do in my mind either. Oh, it wasn't? Okay. (laughs) Not at all. How was it? Uh, I, I liked it when I didn't hate it, but I was doing a lot of hiking. It was more hiking than camping. So it was a lot of up and down, a lot of scrambling. I shouldn't say scrambling because that implies velocity. There was no velocity, (laughs) but there was a lot of up and down in the wilds of Connecticut, a lot of climbing, a lot of descending. And um, uh, it was was harder than I thought it was going to be. And the first time I went out, I didn't have the best backpack or the most appropriate backpack and I didn't like my sleeping pad. There were problems, yeah. and I addressed some of them the second time I went out. So it got a little bit better. And uh, But you were spending the night, right? Yeah, I camped the first time for three nights and the second time for two nights. I was trying to walk the Appalachian Trail in Connecticut. I was trying oh, to cool. do that whole thing. So oh, I did that's that. awesome. Yeah. And you completed it? Yeah, uh, uh, yeah uh, basically. I, I, there's a tiny bit at the end that I didn't do because my wife was picking me up and there, there was a, basically a place to exit the trail that was more appropriate. So I exited <laughs> I gotcha. a little bit before the end. <laughs> okay, for convenience sake, that's okay. Yeah, exactly. It used to be a dream of mine to hike the whole thing. I've hiked a lot of parts of it in Georgia, but I mean, that, that ship has sailed for me, I think, at this well, age. That was sort of my initial uh, fantasy, I don't know why, because it, again, as you said, it doesn't seem like a thing that I would do. And I totally agree with that. But I got it into my head years ago that I would enjoy it. Um, and so in the back of my mind, I was always thinking, someday I'm going to do some hiking and I'm going to hike the Appalachian Trail. <laughs> and then when the pandemic happened and I found myself uh, in a house with my family, I decided right. it was time to leave. Right. And so I thought this might be a good time to experiment with hiking. And I didn't know it was going to be quite as expensive as it, as it is just the sort of setting up costs just to get gear is expensive. Yeah. That stuff isn't cheap. And especially if you want to kind of have all your bases covered, uh, there are all sorts, sorts of fun gadgets and things that you don't necessarily need, but those are also kind of fun to get. Yeah. I didn't get a lot of gadgets, but I did buy a nice tent. I bought a nice, uh, sleeping bag. I bought yeah. a nice, but two back, nice backpacks and that shit ends up adding up. Yeah, for sure. And the, uh, and, the, and, the, and the food isn't cheap. Those, uh, those dehydrated meals are, are not cheap if you're going to eat a bunch of them. Yeah, those have come a long way though. They're not bad now. It was delicious. I have to tell you, the chili beef and mac that I had, uh-huh. oh, <laughs> I still fantasize about it. Delicious. It's stuff. Plus when you're out there and you've been hiking and it's- well, That's the thing. It's so good. It's so much better. You, you've been hiking all day, you're starving, and there's nothing else to do at night other than eat. Uh, it's the only thing you have to look forward to. And then it turns out that the food is actually delicious. I loved it. Did you pass anyone on the trail that, was, that recognized you? No, thank God, no. That'd be a little weird, huh? Well, it would be embarrassing too, because I was, you know, the whole time, I, it looked like I was probably going to drop dead from a heart attack. <laughs> 
I didn't need anybody going, Hey, Michael Ian Black, do you need any help? I didn't right. need that. <laughs> Um, so when I have people on, I like to talk a little bit uh, initially about sort of the the movies of your youth and what your movie going days were like when you were a kid and how uh, robust an influence that was. My movie going experience as a kid was uh, shallow, <clears throat> not particularly thoughtful, um, not particularly uh, I-, I didn't feel like I was getting a tremendous amount out of it. Um, When I was probably in my early adolescence, when we got our first VCR, Uh but, and you know, I didn't go to, and then we didn't go to the movie theater very much before that. And then the only other option was like to see movies on television and they were always terrible or at least in my mind, they were terrible. They were probably perfectly fine movies, but I didn't, you know, to a nine-year-old, Casablanca doesn't hold a lot of appeal. Right. Um, So when we first got the VCR, that was exciting. And we joined a movie club, which was exciting. And it's funny to remember how, like, those early video stores were a little bit... um, Elitist isn't the right word, but you had to pay to join and then you had to pay to rent. And so there was some expense involved in renting movies. And then obviously if you were late with them, then there was more expense involved and we didn't have very much money at all growing up. So it wasn't like we were renting a ton of movies all the time, but I feel like what I was watching were primarily the big films of the time. So Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., um, Gee, I don't even know. Goonies? Uh, no, I didn't. I, I didn't see Goonies. Um, at friends' houses, we might see a horror movie or two: Friday the Thirteenth or Nightmare on Elm Street, Rocky. Um, I saw Star Wars in the theater. Sure. And but like you know, I wasn't I wasn't like that into movies. <clears throat> Interesting. Did you uh, have designs on show business or acting early on? Yeah, I thought from a young age I was going to be an actor, but I didn't think it would be possible to be a movie actor. Like that thought never occurred to me. I thought I'll just do plays. I'll be in New York and I'll do crummy plays. And then if I'm lucky, I'll get to travel the country and do, you know, the classics and regional theaters and be poor. And um, that's, that, that was the extent of my imagination. Like I didn't think it was possible to end up in the movies or on television. Right. That just did, that seemed like a world well beyond my own. Now, did you, uh, I mean, I I know you've done plenty of stage work, obviously, with comedy and sketch and stuff, but have you acted in plays, plays as a professional? (laughs) Not in like 25 years. Really? I mean, the last, I mean, I feel like I was like 18 or 19, so longer than that now, maybe 20, the last time uh, I did a play. Uh, I would like to. I'd like to go back to the stage and and do something, um, but uh, nobody has asked me to, and it doesn't, you know, it's, well, there's no theater anymore anyway. Theater has stopped existing, at least in this country. Right. You can, you can say theater is dead without sounding like a a snob because it literally is dead. (laughs) 
theater, theaters are, um, yeah, there's just no theater. It just doesn't exist right now in, in any recognizable form. So uh, I haven't done it. I would like to do it at some point in my life again, but that would, it will, it will mean rejoining Actors' Equity, which I'm perfectly willing to do, which is the union for theater actors. Yeah, for some reason, I could see you writing a play. Is that, am I off base there? Or is that something that you, that excites you in any way? Um, if I had a good idea for a play, yeah, it could excite me, but I don't. And so it doesn't. Gotcha. <laughs> um, so let's uh, kind of skip forward to uh, the NYU years. And I do want to talk about the state or else <clears throat> people will be very mad at me. Uh, I know you're having a reunion. Is it this Saturday? For Sketchfest? Uh, question. Yes. <laughs> yes. But we, uh, I, I'm not really, we, we've already done our work for it. It's a, it's a thing that we made. Oh, okay. We're going to show. So I'm not doing any actual reuniting on Saturday. I've already had my reunion. Gotcha. I didn't, I didn't know what form it was going to take. I confessed to all my crushes <laughs> and it was embarrassing. <laughs> well, I mean, I think everyone is, it, it occurred to me the other night, I was watching that Belushi documentary. Um, I don't know if you've seen that, but... I've seen some of it, yeah. Uh, when I was watching some of those uh, still photos and clips of the Second City Group and the National Lampoon Radio Hour, and I'm looking at those people all kind of gathered together, and I was just blown away by the, you know, the talent kind of before they were super famous. And then it kind of really hit home how much, like, the state was that for our generation. Um it, like every single one of you and such a big group went on to do amazing things and still do amazing things. And it's really, really something special. I think so. Of course, none of us have had the success that any of those second city guys had and gals had, um, you know, there's no Bill Murray from our group. There's no John Belushi from our group, but we've all had good, solid careers in showbiz doing things that people appreciate um, and we're all still alive. So in that respect, we've got one up on Belushi. <laughs> how, uh, how old were you guys during that first, uh, during the MTV season? Uh, the youngest, I was the youngest and I think I was 20 when we premiered. I think I might've been 22. Wow. And I think Ken Marino is the oldest and he was probably 24 and a half. Maybe that is crazy, man. Yeah, it was, it was, um, it was crazy. Especially now to be our age, like we're the same age to look back at being 22 and to be handed the keys, you know, on a super cool network, you know, at that time and kind of, I mean, how, how much free reign did you guys have? Was it kind of go do what you want? No, in the beginning it was, it was very, um, they really wanted us to be something that we weren't in the beginning. They were trying to get us to do um, like MTV pop culture stuff, you know, and it it wasn't a good fit in the beginning. I mean, they did give us some leeway. Absolutely. And eventually what happened is I think we kind of earned more when they started to understand and we started to understand who we really were um, because you know, we were trying to make them happy. I think they were trying to make us happy to a certain extent. Um, but it took a little while for the network 
and for us to understand ourselves. They were just getting into original programming. We'd never been on television before. Um, so there were some growing pains. And um, yeah, we, we, we kind of had to earn their trust. Was Bob Pittman around back then? Um, yes. But, but, you know, there was a whole echelon of MTV people that we didn't have anything to do with. Uh, you know, we dealt, you know, we were a little, little show. We dealt with mid-level executives. Um, we didn't deal with like the huge people until we started to get more popular and then they would show up every now and again. Right. <laughs> well, he runs uh, the movie crush and stuff you should know are on iHeart and he runs iHeart. So I've met Bob a few times and I'm always trying to bend his ear on, on those MTV years because I was a kid who grew up with my face peeled to MTV constantly. Yeah, I was too. Like it, it, it wasn't lost on me at all that we were on MTV. I mean, it, it's kind of hard to remember, but you, you mentioned it like MTV really was the coolest place to be at that time. Um, at least from an outsider's point of view, from an insider's point of view, like it was fine. It was a lot more corporate than we thought it would be. It was a lot blander in a lot of ways than we thought it would be. There yeah. were cool things about it. There were perks, but it was a little bit like maybe working at a at a at a record label or something. Right. Where you're like, oh yeah, this is really cool. Like we make cool music, um, but it's still a job, and that's kind of how it felt. Did was it kind of clear to you guys early on, kind of what um, everyone's strengths were? Um, was that pretty evident, or did was there a long process and? and sort of figuring out who was best at what? Well, we all thought that we were good at everything. We were arrogant <laughs> both within our own community and to the world at large. And that arrogance was a source of our strength, but it was also a, a, a tremendous weakness that we had. So there was a lot of jostling in the group, a lot of competitiveness, <clears throat> a lot of um, ego, but not in terms of like, I think I'm better than you, but just, I think everybody felt vulnerable. And so that came out as, um, you know, it, pe- people would, we would fight, you know, we would, we would get mad at each other and, and there would be a lot of tension. Like we were young and yeah. immature and we made a lot of mistakes. Um, and we didn't appreciate fully the opportunity that we had. I don't think anybody could have at our age. Yeah. I mean, there were so many of you too. It's like sketch is tough to get for everyone to have kind of their, uh, the sketches they write, get on the air, the sketches they, they act in, be on the air. And, you know, it's a challenge with a, you know, four or five, six people. Uh, yeah, there were 11 rough. of us, you know, 10 white guys and one white girl. <clears throat> And you would never construct a group like that. Nobody would do that. It's stupid. Yeah. Um, but we started as a college comedy club. You know what I mean? We started out just like as a thing you do in college. And that's how we, that's how we formed and that's how we stayed. Um, correctly so. I mean, you know, there was, there was, there was, it would have been weird if we had jettisoned anybody, you know, once we got the deal. Or if we had added members, um, that would have been weird too. It was an organic thing. Uh, and we kept it organic, but it, it had its its um, pros and cons. And and the big con was that there were 11 of us and it was an, a totally unwieldy number. And the second thing was that there was no leader. Nobody was leading us. Oh, really? Um, 
No, there was no, nobody was in charge. We had a producer and we leaned on him. Once we had the TV show, we leaned on him to kind of keep us on track. And he did, he did a great job. His name's Jim Sharp. Um, but the way we decided everything was by vote. Yeah. I mean, 11 is a lot of people, but that also is a unique thing in sketch when you can, whenever you had everyone sort of out there, it was so fun and chaotic. Um, it didn't happen a ton, but there's also something kind of cool about having that at your disposal when you need it. Yeah. And we were conscious of it and tried to make sure that we did do big kind of group sketches every yeah. now and again, because it did, it did have a really good energy when we did that. And it was fun. Who met who first? Uh, so the first, the, the, the idea really emerged from a, another sketch group that was at NYU the year before we started. A sketch group founded by Mo Willems, who is now one oh, of the yeah. famous children's book uh, authors and illustrators. Um, and he started a sketch group called the sterile yak <laughs> and our, a guy in our group, Todd Hollebeck was a part of that. And then the way NYU worked was if you wanted funding for your group, you would have to allow other people to join your group, which makes sense. You know, yeah. you couldn't just have a group and then be like, oh, nobody else can be in and expect to get money from the college. And so the sterile yak wanted to continue their second year, but to do that and to, to continue to get money from NYU, they had to open up the group, which they didn't want to do. So Todd said, basically, I'll start a new group. Like I'll leave the sterile yak and I'll start a new group. And that way, and you guys could take a member or two and I'll start this new thing. And that way everybody will continue to get funding. So that's what he did. He was the one who organized the first kind of tryouts and rehearsals for what we then called the new group, which became the state. Um, so he was so, and he knew Ken Marino, they were in the same class. So Ken Marino and Todd knew each other and they knew, and Ken Marino knew David Wayne, but David Wayne was not in was in the sterile yak and didn't leave uh, originally. And I think those are the only guys in that class. And then the rest of us were freshmen coming up that year. They were sophomores. Wow. That's just amazing. Marino is one of those guys that I just, I can hardly look at his face without laughing, no matter what he's doing. He is uh, <laughs> very good. <laughs> Annoy he's annoyingly good i think well i mean everyone is so great it was just it was a magical thing that it's just one of those moments in comedy history i think that uh everything aligns and it's just i don't know i'm not a big believer in like fate and the cosmos and stuff but when you see something like this happen it kind of makes me like believe in god occasionally <laughs> Co comedy god at least i mean we're hardly a miracle but the, what i think we had was um, we had a very strong work ethic and we had that, uh, that, uh, arrogance. And then we also, I think benefited from the fact that we didn't know anything about anything. Yeah. So we were all, we all sort of had to teach each other how to make comedy and in doing so, I think we created a distinct voice. Um, that's what I think worked, you know, and then 
because we had this work ethic, we kind of, you know, supported each other in that work ethic. And that translated after the state into, you know, being able to carve out careers for ourselves. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This summer, click into Memorial Day Savings at the Home Depot and get after those outdoor projects with some serious cordless power from RYOBI. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the RYOBI 40-volt battery-powered mower. Leaves and debris are no match for the 40-volt power of the RYOBI leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Tidy up those flower beds and keep your walkways looking sharp with RYOBI's 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Yard work. Done and done. Click into Memorial Day Savings happening now at your cordless power source, The Home Depot. Shop now at The Home Depot or homedepot.com. How doers get more done. This is Ashley Iconetti from the Ben and Ashley I Almost Famous podcast. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure, to start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee. Sounds perfect. I'd love to talk about Stella for a minute, too. Uh, I know we can't hit like everything you've ever done, but I think Stella and uh, Wet Hot American Summer are a couple of things I want to address. Uh, Stella was – I watched some more of the shorts uh, this morning because it had been a while. I watched the show when it was on. It was just such a great – idea i think to do this kind of throwback kind of three stooges-esque rat packy kind of uh thing with your absurdist really kind of silly comedy um how much fun was stella (laughs) that's such a dumb question but it seemed like you guys really enjoyed it we did we the three of us me michael showalter and david wayne really loved stella um and Stella be, was an outgrowth of the state. And one of the things we liked about it, of course, was that there were only three of us. Yeah. You know, it made everything so much easier. But um, we still, we, you know, we worked really hard at it. We, we worked our asses off on Stella. Um, it is so silly and it feels so throwaway and so absurd. But it was so... Uh, deliberate. It was so crafted. I'm not saying it's well-crafted, although I think it is, but it was very crafted. It was very structured. It was very, um, we thought about it a lot and, and we thought about, it was all, it was all very deliberate. Um, It's, I think Stella is probably my favorite thing I've done just because it was such a pure expression of itself. Like it, 
and it and it went places that I just feel like I felt like it was I felt like we were the only ones who could do what we were doing. It's not to say it was better than what other people are doing. I don't think it was, but it was it was unique to us. And this and the state similarly was unique to us. Like we were the only ones who could have done the state. We were the only ones who could have done Stella. Um, you know, even with Wet Hot American Summer, that world of people started to open up a little bit. And yeah. Michael and David brought in all these other people and sort of populated their universe with these other people, which ended up being amazing. But pre that, when we were doing, well, I guess Stella, when we, we, were, we had started to do Stella before Wet Hot um, and started to make those shorts, it all felt very contained. And I really uh, like that and appreciate that about it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's interesting, the sort of business of comedy. Uh, I think it's really easy for people who have never tried something like that to think something like Stella is just th- three old friends getting together and dicking around and being goofy and having fun and rolling cameras. Um, but I'm glad to hear you talk about that a little bit and sort of demystify that because it is a lot of hard work and it is sort of serious business in a way. It can also be fun, but um, it, it's, it is intentional and very tough to do. Yeah, it was all, it, it, it was, it was all intentional and, uh, and I'm, I'm, yeah, I remain, I remain really proud of it. What was the expectation for Wet Hot American Summer? Um, I mean, obviously you didn't think it was probably going to be this, I mean, it's kind of a cultural phenomenon at this point. Well, David and Michael thought they were making a movie that was going to find commercial success, like in the theaters. Oh, interesting. And I thought they were out of their fucking minds. <laughs> I thought... There's, I mean, I was hopeful. I was like, great. I hope it does. But I didn't think that it would um, find, you know, like success in that way. But I did think that it would find its audience over time. Yeah. Uh, And I was right about that. But I didn't predict that it would have the long shelf life that it's had. I didn't, I had no idea. Yeah. I mean, it's... uh... I mean, like I said, it's sort of a cultural phenomenon. I think it goes beyond cult movie hit, too. Uh, I mean, people just want, still want more. They want more sequels, uh, more TV episodes. It's just a world that I think, and it's probably a lot of people from our generation who grew up on stuff like Meatballs and just have such a, or or went to summer camps and have such a fondness for that. Uh, I want more. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was, I mean, I know that it was definitely inspired by meatballs and by both of their summer camp experiences. Um, and I, I was, I was just happy that they let me be a part of it. You know, I just wanted to hang out with those guys. I mean, the whole cast, I just wanted to like, I just wanted to be there and hang out. Um, and so I was glad that I was able to be a part of it. Was it ever weird after the state when people started kind of pairing off and partnering up, and doing different things together to include or not include people? Um, yes. In the very beginning, it was weird and difficult. Um, for example, me, so I was the, me, Tom Lennon and Ben Grant were the first ones to do it. Mm-hmm. So we created a show called Viva Variety. For yeah, Comedy Central, of course. Fantastic. Which was based on, a sketch that Tom wrote for the state. Uh, 
And we created a show out of it. And that created a lot of hurt feelings. People were upset with us for doing that. Um, because it felt, I don't know, exclusionary or something. Yeah. And it was, you know, um, but at the same time, it also felt like, well, shit, like we have to move forward. Yeah. And that was, I mean, this was my thinking. Like we, 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 I have to like do something. The state is not really operable right now. Um, it has no prospects. So we have to, you know, I have to find another thing to do. And this was the thing that it seemed like it would be really fun to do. Um, so then we brought in Carrie, Kenny, uh, Carrie, Kenny Silver, I guess. And, uh, and we had a really good time with it. And we had people from the state on it, but it was, it was always, it took a long time for those feelings, hurt feelings to go away. Um, and I take a lot of responsibility for that. Like, I, f- I feel really bad about that and continue to. Really? That it hurt people. Well, but I mean, that's the only way. It, I mean, was the state still a thing at that point? It kind of was. It kind of The state, in, and I think in all of our minds, continues to be a thing. Like, it right. has never stopped being a thing sure. in all of our minds. It's just that we can never agree on doing anything together other than these short little things, little shows, little reunions. Um, and there's just too many of us. It's just too fucking unwieldy yeah. to do anything with. So the state was still very much uppermost in everybody's mind, but there were no, there was n- nothing was happening. There were no offers on the table. There was no yeah. TV network stepping up. And honestly, I don't know that we could have as a group continued to go on. Like we burned pretty bright for a reason. Like, yeah, we were, it, it, it was just too much for everybody. And I think we would have disintegrated pretty quickly, even if we had continued. Do you think if we, it would have been, didn't have the maturity, if it would have been five or six people, would that have know. changed things? It's, it's impossible to say. Cause yeah. you know, it was what it was. Um, I do think that, I mean, I know that like, if we were to do something now, it would be a totally different experience just because none of us have the same shit to prove that we had to prove then. So I think we could all enjoy it in a way that we couldn't enjoy it then. You know, the, the, the net result of it might be that it sucks because maybe we would be complacent in a way because we weren't like clawing at each other's throats to get on air. Um, but at least I know it would be fun. Yeah. I mean, it's just such a fun thing for fans still today to see whenever any of you get together for a project, whether it's uh, the uh, David Wayne directing a movie and including like a couple of people, it's just, it always feels like a little bit of that state DNA is there. And it's just such a special thing for the fans, I think. Well, what's nice for me as a fan of those guys and girls is that I also see it when I see their work. You know, mm-hmm. I see, I know, I know the DNA of all the jokes that are on the screen. Yeah. Um, I, you know, it's because it's my DNA. I just recognize it. And it's, I really like that. I really like seeing their work and seeing, um, and, 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 and feeling pride in it, not pride. Like I have any ownership in it. I don't, but just pride that, you know, I knew Showalter when he was 
you know, 17 years old. Right. Or, you know, I know the Reno guys from, they were 17 years old. You know, it's just, I just, I like it. I like, I like feeling a part of that. Uh, who's doing the documentary? I mean, that's got to happen at some point, right? <laughs> I don't know. Nobody, nobody has asked to do the documentary. Really? That's <laughs> shocking to me. Maybe Judd Apatow will step up. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so let's move over to your uh, most recent book. I mean, you started writing books, uh, children's books, how many years ago? I don't know. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> but your most recent book, and I, uh, I met you previously when we did the, uh, well, I met you a long time ago briefly, but, um, when I did a, a sort of online, uh, in conversation about your latest book, better, a better man, a mostly serious letter to my son, uh, and I really enjoyed that conversation because it's a it's a book that I read in like a day and a half, and it's just it's so wonderful, especially as a parent. To um, and it is mostly serious. Uh, there are plenty of funny moments to be sure, but it's just such a sweet book, and I think reveals a side of you that uh, maybe people don't know and can really appreciate. Well, thanks. Um, I do appreciate that. And thank you for the kind words now and before. Um, yeah, it was, it was a book. It is a book that was hard to write and it, it hard to write both because of the subject matter and the subject matter really informed the form that it was going to take. Mm-hmm. And I knew that if I wrote that book, it was going to have to be pretty serious or as the title ended up being mostly serious. Yeah. Um, and I was really scared to do that because I, you know, there's nothing worse than a comedian who wants to be taken seriously. It's <laughs> like, just the worst. <laughs> and I didn't, you know, I was, I was afraid of stepping into that territory. Uh, but I'm glad I did. You know, the response has been really warm. Yeah. And I, I wrote, a book that I didn't know that I was capable of writing. So that feels good. Yeah, it is uh, a warm book and there's still, I mean, even if you're not a parent, there's so much in there because you talk about your own life and your own sort of uh, unique childhood and situation with your parents. And um, it, it never kind of feels like therapy for you. I imagine it was in some ways. It really wasn't. Oh, really? And I guess in in the way that maybe you mean, like it wasn't cathartic. I wasn't shedding tears over the keyboard. I was really just trying to drill down to understand things mm-hmm. about myself, which I guess is therapy. I mean, I guess that's what the point of therapy is. But it, but you know, it was more important to me to to get to um, some bedrock stuff in a thoughtful way. Um, And I guess in that way it was therapeutic, but it wasn't like, I didn't feel like I was dredging up things that I hadn't thought about before. It was just that I was maybe going a little bit deeper and, and a little, um, I was, I was, I was drilling down and spreading out. I was fracking is what I'm saying. I was (laughs) fracking. (laughs) My psyche. <laughs> uh, well, I was crying by the end of this thing uh, and kind of here and there throughout. I'm a pretty sensitive middle-aged dad. So <laughs> there were so many parts that just uh, 
Really, really sweet stuff. And um, I'm, I'm curious now, your son was headed to college. Did COVID thwart that? Well, he did go, um, but he had to come back uh, spring break of his freshman year, and he hasn't returned yet. Has that been pretty cool? Having him home? Yeah, I mean, I think I have quite a few friends who got started way earlier than I did because my daughter's just six, and they had kids that, and I feel bad for the kids, but these parents are getting bonus time, you know, that you don't think you're going to get. No, that aspect of it is is nice. It is nice having him home, obviously. Um, But at the same time, it's, you know, I was just thinking last night as I was staring at him across the dinner table, like, dude, you need to get out of here. Right. Not just because... (laughs) You know, he's going to turn 20 yeah. and I just, I just want him to go and, and start his life. And yeah. it's hard when life just feels like it's on pause, but I think this is just going to end up being a lost year, you know, and he'll start yeah. again in the fall. Well, that means you're a good dad because you want your kids to go and spread their wings, even though you, you know, kind of want to keep them forever at the same time. It's good stuff. Uh, all right, man, we'll, we'll move ahead. Oh, actually, uh, you know what? I did something that I've never done before which is I sourced some listener questions uh, from our Facebook page. If you would indulge a few of these. Sure. Yeah. All right. This is from uh, one of our admins. And I think it's a good question. Uh, Rebecca Robe, one of our longtime listeners says, would love to know who was your favorite crew to work with? Uh, we talk a lot because I used to work on film sets and film crews and what a, how that can kind of make or break an experience for everyone. And do you have a specific crew that you really, really loved? Probably the crew from Ed, which is the NBC show uh-huh. that I did. And the only reason I say it is just because the show was on for what, three and a half, four seasons or something. Is that how long? Yeah, that sounds like about that. right. About four seasons. And it, the, the crew was pretty consistent from start to finish. Mm-hmm. And so when we spent, you know, months and months and months together every year. So we just got to know each other really well. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there is that cliche about how crews become like families and, you know, to some extent that's true. Like you, you, you see these people every day, but the difference between a, 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 a film crew and a family is that everybody in a film crew, you, your paycheck demands on a certain, uh, level of professionalism, <laughs> right. whereas your family membership does not right. you don't need to be professional. <laughs> so people have to act well, you know, yeah. they have to behave themselves on a film set. And that lends itself to a certain camaraderie, I think, that you don't necessarily get from your own family. Yeah, that's a good point. So it was a pleasure. I mean, it was a pleasure working with them. Uh, all right. This next one comes from Linnea Barnett. Uh, big fan. So excited for this episode. Question is, with such a broad history, and entertainment, stand-up, television, movies, uh, writing, book writing. What's been your favorite medium for yourself? I don't have one. Uh, what I find enjoyable is not being in any one thing. I sort of like the dilettante nature of my career. I yeah. like that I kind of flit from one thing to another because I get bored, you know, Um it would, I think my career would be in much better shape if I had just stuck with one thing, if I'd just been like, I'm going to be an actor. And then I just really pursued acting. But I, you know, you, like Ed is a good example where you're on a show for three and a half years and you're just acting on it. And that's really fun. And you love the people. And by the end of it, you're like, I don't know that I ever want to act again, you know, right. so you go do something else. 
Um, and you know, I've spent the last, I don't know how long, uh, well, you know, before quarantine, like I was really working hard on this book and, you know, as soon as you're done with a book, I think every author feels like this. You're like, I never, I'm never going to write anything else again. Cause this is terrible. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, so you go and do something else, you go do stand up, and then you get sick of that. And so you go back to acting and, um, so, you know, the nature of my career is that I haven't been particularly successful in anything. Um, oh, but I've on. been able to do a lot of things, <laughs> which I like. That's cool. I imagine that's a lot of fun to kind of uh, flit back and forth between different worlds. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elliot People says, and a, a lot of people ask this question. It was the most asked question about a Stella reunion. Will we get more Stella? Uh, Elliot dressed up as a skunk person for Halloween as a teenager <laughs> and uh, really wants to see more. Uh, you know, Stella's like the state where we, we, you know, I think we'd like to do something and then just life makes it hard. You know, everybody has kids. We're separated geographically. We all end up with different projects and just the right moment hasn't happened where we can like get Mm -hmm. together and do something. I, I like to think there'd be more Stella, um, for a lot of years, we were reuniting every year, every other year at Sketchfest in San Francisco and doing yeah. a couple of shows. And those were really fun. Um, so, yeah, hopefully. I bet you could do Stella on Broadway at this point. I mean, they did Oh, Hello. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is from Sammy Cahill. Is there a role that you've turned down that you regret or one that you auditioned? No. <laughs> oh, uh, there's... <laughs> I mean, I don't turn down roles. You know, it's like there's a there's a misperception among people who aren't in show business. It's like if you get offered a job, you take the job. Like, well, the, the second jobs part, aren't easy to come by. The there's second a million part, jobs that I came close to that I didn't get. Well, that's the second question is, you know, one that you auditioned for that you really wanted and didn't get. The one that I really wanted that I didn't get was... Um, What's his face? His role? Uh, oh God! What is he? Uh, yeah, uh, he's in Lord of the Rings. He's the little guy. <laughs> he's very good. Oh, uh, Sean Astin, or or no? Uh, uh, with the eyes. <laughs> yes, he ended up being. So, I can't think of it either. It was uh, Eternal Sunshine of the of the Spotless Mind. Oh, and he ends he ended up in that. But it was like for a long time, like. I had auditioned for it. I met Michelle Gondry. I, you know, did it. I had did audition with Mark Ruffalo and like, they were like sort of stringing me along for a long time. And then I, 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 I can't believe I can't remember his name. He's the nicest guy in the world. Elijah Wood. Thank you. Elijah yes. Wood. And then Elijah Wood became available and they were like, okay, we got Elijah Wood. So thanks. But no, thanks. Oh no. Yeah. That's a great movie. I could see you in that role. Yeah. I could have seen me in that role too. It didn't happen. Um, and then the other thing is, and I don't know that I regret this or not, but it would have definitely put my life on a different course was uh, to be the host of the Late Late Show. Oh, after, interesting. Uh, Craig Kilborn left. It, 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 was, it came down to me or Craig Ferguson. Um, and there huh. was a moment, there were, there were several days where I thought the job was mine and then it wasn't. Do you do test shows and interviews and segments and stuff for something? I did like that? a week of hosting. Oh wow! Where they bring in guests and everything, huh? Yeah, yeah. I hosted the show for a week. Oh, on TV? On TV? Oh, okay. I thought you meant as like an audition thing. 
Well, it was. It was an audition too, but audition. they happened to air each audition. I auditioned by five. In a row. <laughs> I gotcha. Uh, if you could, and this is uh, the last one from Scott Hodgson. Uh, if you could play poker with anyone in history, who would it be? Um, somebody very wealthy and very bad at poker. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This summer, click into Memorial Day Savings at the Home Depot and get after those outdoor projects with some serious cordless power from RYOBI. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the RYOBI 40-volt battery-powered mower. Leaves and debris are no match for the 40-volt power of the RYOBI leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Tidy up those flower beds and keep your walkways looking sharp with RYOBI's 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Yard work, done and done. Click into Memorial Day Savings happening now at your cordless power source, The Home Depot. Shop now at The Home Depot or homedepot.com. How doers get more done. This is Ashley Iconetti from the Ben and Ashley I Almost Famous podcast. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Um, all right, we will move on to uh, your movie crush. You originally picked uh, Miller's Crossing, which is um, one of my favorite movies of all time but uh sadly we had already covered that on the show with uh, ben acker um i don't know if you know ben or not but it's his favorite movie and you moved on to flirting with disaster mm -hmm. from 1996 uh, written and directed by david o russell one of my favorite movies one of my favorite uh directors mm -hmm. uh he's uh, i often talk about the 100 percent club with these directors who have made nothing but like really great movies and david o russell is up there for me He's really great. And uh, Flirting with Disaster is one of my favorite comedies. I rewatched it in preparation for this because I hadn't seen it in a while. Oh, thanks. And there's that just helps. so much, so many funny things in it, mm -hmm. um, little moments. Um, and it doesn't, what I, it's, it's, you know, it's a very thin premise. Guy wants to meet his biological parents, adopted yeah. kid. But it's really full. I mean, it's, the characters are all really fleshed out. It's a great cast. There's so much funny stuff in it. So many unexpected twists and turns. Um, and it's just really well made. And, what, and I like that it was, I think it's David O. Russell's like, first 
was it, kind of real movie. I mean, he made Spanking the Monkey before that. Yeah, this a tiny was, little right. black and white film. Um, and then I think Flirting with Disaster was the next one. Yeah, that's right. And so as good as it is, I also feel like I'm seeing him kind of find his own footing a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, I feel like he's wearing his own influences a little bit more on his sleeve than he does for the rest of his career. Like you see so much, well, I mean, Woody Allen is the first thing that comes to mind. That's exactly what I was going to say. I always forget about that beginning bit with the voiceover and the different uh, faces of New York, uh, these people that could possibly be his parents. And that is so Woody Allen. Oh yeah. I mean, so much of it is very Woody Allen-esque. And it's great. I mean, it doesn't feel, he's not ripping anybody off by any means, but um, he uses the camera in different ways than Woody Allen ever did. Yeah. Um, And the story is probably not a, a story Woody Allen would tell, but you can, but you know, you see it and it's, it's nice to see. Um, and there's just so many good actors in it and everybody's performance is really smart and funny. And, um, you know, as absurd as the movie gets and it gets really absurd, uh-huh. you never feel like any of them are losing the plot. The, you know, they're, they're never losing their characters. Um, they all stay like believable in the most unbelievable situations. Yeah. I mean, it may be one of my favorite comedy casts of all times. Um, everyone well, is loaded with amazing solid. people. Yeah. I mean, so it starts with, so the three leads are Ben Stiller, Patricia Arquette, and, I don't know if she pronounces it Taya or Tia Leone. Taya, I guess. Yeah, I think so. Um, all of whom have like such different energy and are all so good. Um, and then the supporting cast is unbelievable. George Siegel, Mary <laughs> Tyler Moore, Alan Alda, Lily Tomlin, Richard Jenkins, Josh Brolin, um, yeah. Glenn Fitzgerald, who has kind of a scene-stealing part. Uh, he took your role. When I was watching it last night, I was was like, like, oh, shit. That is a Michael Ian Michael. He should have played Lonnie. I know. That's the part I would play. But like, but, but like, I hate that I would be cast as Lonnie, but I absolutely would be. (laughs) Like in my head, in my head, I'm the Ben Stiller part, but I'm just I I can see that. No, I can see you playing Mel. I wish I was. Well, it, it is funny. Last night, the whole time, I mean, Glenn Fitzgerald did such a good job as Lonnie, but when I was watching, I was like, oh man, it never occurred to me. And that's like, I could totally see you. And I think that it would have been age appropriate. Like, yeah, it would have been. Yeah. yeah. I didn't even get, I didn't even get the audition, man. <laughs> uh, David Patrick Kelly in a very small part is Fritz Boudreaux. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I love that section because they, how quickly they immediately launch. I mean, it's instantaneous as father and son, two seconds after they meet each other, they're, oh, yeah. you know, punching each other on the <laughs> shoulder. And it's just, it's so absurd and silly, but it's, it's, but you buy it. You buy it. <laughs> you totally buy it because you understand, you sort you definitely understand where Ben Stiller's coming from. And this other character, the uh, Fritz, whatever his last name is. It's Boudreaux. <laughs> you're like, you're like, I know that guy. Like, that guy is believable to me. I feel like I've met that guy yeah. who will just turn on a dime from being your worst enemy to your best friend uh, in a second and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. And then back again. 
the old needle dick. There's so many lines like uh, my wife and I probably have more lines from this movie that we say in our real life all these years later than any other movie. I think Mm -hmm. Uh, many, many lines from uh, you're not good B and B people to all the, anytime any, either one of us is, telling the other to like to touch something or feel something. We always go, you know, no use two fingers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the pottery scene with Lily, T- Lily uh, Tomlin is just so amazing. <laughs> and he's always trying to please everyone he meets each new set of potential parents. He just wants to like agree with what they're about. Right. Cause he wants to be a part of it. You know, he wants to be part of that family. He wants to just know where he belongs. And it was the first time I feel like I'd seen Ben Stiller in a, in the straight man part. Yeah. I feel like at that point I knew him from the Ben Stiller show and uh-huh. from kind of his impressions that he was doing. And he was doing like a lot of character stuff. And then he came and then he did this. And I thought like, and I have, and I've thought ever since, like he's just one of the best straight men who's ever been. Yeah. Um, he's just really, really good at reacting um, and being human and taking and, and, and having the part where you're kind of seeing the world through his eyes, you know, which is a critical part of any film. Like we have to understand the world through kind of some point of view and it's Ben Stiller's point of view. And we understand him, I feel like, and we empathize with him and we, you know, he's just really, really good in it. Yeah. I mean, there's so many great moments of push and pull. Um, one of the sequences I rem- um, that stands out is with uh, when Josh Brolin and Richard Jenkins characters are added to the fray. Uh, and, and, and it's one of my favorite lines when he says, uh, oh, there's nothing like the, uh, oh, hold on a second. Nothing like the cruel acceptance of a casual invitations <laughs> when, when they come with them to, uh, to any of uh, Antelope Wells and, and, you know, everything's falling apart. And Ben Stiller says something about, yeah, and, you know, I'm going to bring these two gay guys along with me too. And then all of a sudden, Brolin gets in his face. And there's, yeah. just, there's just that great comedic <laughs> tension. <laughs> right. just, that's a great part. Yeah, and Brolin's really good in it. Uh, God, yeah, just uh, why did you say that? Gay guys, what, what do you... Yeah. What do you <laughs> no, I didn't mean anything by it. It's just... <laughs> Okay, neurotic guy. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what I am to you? I'm the neurotic guy? Yeah, that's what you are to me. You're the neurotic. It's just funny. I mean, they're just really good. And and, and, yeah, Um, it's just great acting. It's just great acting. I think uh, we we did, uh, we covered Silver Linings Playbook a few weeks on the show. And it occurred to me watching this last night too, that uh, David O. Russell does this controlled chaos so well. And there are so many scenes in his movies where, and it's usually handheld camera and uh, it's, it's almost like a, a hopped up version of, of a Robert Altman scene or something. Mm. Uh, he just does it so well. And that's a really, really hard thing to pull off. I think to have the scene sort of still make sense and even to shoot it, to block it out. And um, I just love the, those chaotic scenes that he puts in his movies. And he makes it look, I mean, I think the handheld aspect of it makes it look much more effortless than it is. Yeah. I mean, it's really hard, particularly when you've got a lot of characters, uh, you know, when you've got six, seven people in a scene 
and you're trying to make all of that make sense and cut together and and be paced right and everything else like that's that's just a ton of work that's really hard to do it is it also has a a thing that he does well in his movies that i love in movies is when everything feels like it's just gaining momentum as the story goes forward and it mm-hmm. it's just sort of picking up steam and going faster and faster until you usually culminates in just this amazing third act uh and of course in this movie is when they they finally land at uh, Antelope Wells mm-hmm. with Alan Alda and Lily Tomlin. And, uh, oh man, it's just wonderful. Yeah, and, it be, and, and, it, and it turns into kind of like farce, I guess, with, you know, people coming in and out of rooms and, and doors opening and closing and then there's sex stuff. And, um, but, you know, he's juggling a lot of balls, but, you know, it, he, he keeps them all aloft. It's, it's great. It's really great. Yeah, that's. I love it when movies do that when they bring a group of people to a place and then split them up, mm-hmm. and then you can, you can have so much fun kind of intercutting. Uh, you know, Patricia Arquette up there with uh, getting her armpit licked <laughs> by Josh Brolin, and then downstairs, you know, the revelation that uh, that that they're you know were former acid, well, I guess still current yeah. acid makers. Um, I think that's just such a rich, fertile land for comedy to be able to cross cut between all these absurd moments. Yeah. And they're all like, you know, they're all, like even Lonnie as crazy as he is, is like a well-drawn character. Like you kind of understand his total resentment towards this new guy that's showing up saying he's oh, yeah. his brother. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just really well-crafted. That, uh, that's another one of the lines that we always say is when either one of us is, repeating a story to someone else we always go (laughs) jerry garcia blah 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 (laughs) it's kind of become our shorthand in a lot of ways (laughs) um god it's hard not to just say favorite lines over and over and over which doesn't make for a very good podcast (laughs) um brolin this is sort of the this is kind of really early on in his kind of brolin 2.0 career Mm -hmm. uh what was 1.0 well, the Goonies, which oh. you didn't see, evidently. No, I see right? <laughs> you still haven't seen it? No. Oh, wow. You should see the Goonies. It's good. I don't have any interest. <laughs> That's one of those movies that I'm going to go to my grave never having seen. Because I yeah. know I'm not going it, to, it's not going to evoke any nostalgia for right. me. So I'm <laughs> right. not, you know, it's not going it's, it, it's to scratch any itch that I might have. All right, so fair. I feel like, let me just let it live in a lure. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that was his big kind of first movie. And then uh, he did a lot of smaller things. And then this kind of relaunched the second phase of his career, I think, and mm. didn't do too much after for a little bit. And then all of a sudden it seems like became, you know, one of the bigger, you know, kind of tough guys mm-hmm. in, uh, in Hollywood, but he's so funny in this. He, he should do more comedy. I think. Yeah, he's great. I mean, look, if you're going to make the argument to me that Josh Brolin is great, I'm not going to, I'm not going <laughs> to fight back. I'm going to be like, yeah, I agree with you. I'd like to see David O. Russell do another kind of more straight ahead. I mean, there's a lot of comedy in many of his films, mm-hmm. but something just so fun like this, there's elements of slapstick. It's kind of a, a road movie. It's a situational comedy. He really throws a lot into the mix in like 95 minutes here and just pulls yeah. it all off somehow. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, his next film was three Kings, right? Was that his very next one? Yeah. Another Which, great movie. I think that might be my favorite of his movies. Um, 
but like, you know, clearly his vision for what he wanted to do was maybe, I don't know if broader is the right word, but he had, you know, he had a grander vision for, for the kinds of stuff he wanted to do. And flirting with disaster very much feels like a, a huge step on, on that path. And then Three Kings is another big step on that path. Uh, I'd be, I, I, I would love to see him do another comedy like this, just like a straight up comedy comedy. It would be, it, yeah, it would be, it would be awesome. And, and I wonder, I'm going to text him and see if he's thought about it. <laughs> I don't know him at all. I've never met him. I'm curious how he got these. Cause it was really, you know, spanking the monkey was a sort of a Sundance hit, mm-hmm. but very, very small movie. Like you were saying, I wonder how he got these legends uh, Alan Alda, Siegel, Lily Tomlin, and Mary Tyler Moore. Wonder how you even got them in this film. Well, it's a Miramax film, right? So, and I think, I think so. Yeah. Uh, so I think yeah, Spanking the Monkey became a Sundance darling, and then I assume like the Weinstein's took him under their wing, right? And I guess he was just kind of like the hot new guy. I would I would imagine, and then maybe when Stiller signed on maybe it just made it much easier to, to get everybody. I don't know. I'd, it'd be, I'd be curious to find out. Uh, I'd love to talk a little bit about Patricia Arquette is fantastic in this movie. She's too. great. So and I feel like, I feel like she's totally underrated just yeah. as a, as a, as an actress. Every time I see her, I'm like, Oh yeah, Patricia Arquette is great. She is. Uh, there's a moment. Every time I see this movie, there's a moment that I didn't notice before. And uh, last night it was just in the beginning in the opening credits when she's in her, her little lingerie getting ready for their date and the credits are still rolling and she plucks off uh, rose petals and, and plucks them down her shirt and then tucks one between her legs under her <laughs> little negligee. And I never noticed and her, but in her, it's not just that she does it, which she does and is funny. And I don't know if that was directed or not, but then her, her reaction to herself doing that was really good too. And I, I remember noting the reaction. Now I can't even remember what the reaction was, but I remember thinking, God, that's really good. Like whatever you're doing there is just really honest. And, and she just is so open to the camera. She's yeah. just so emotionally available to whatever's going on around her. That's what makes her so great, I think. Yeah, I think she does. She kind of giggles almost. Mm-hmm. When she oh, maybe that's what it is. She kind of giggles. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, it looked like she just sort of did it on the spot, probably improbbed it and then laughed at what she was doing. <laughs> um, but she's also stars in true romance, which I think is just unbelievably yeah, good. One of my favorites. We haven't done that on the show yet. I'm surprised no one's picked that one yet. She does have, she has this natural thing, just the way, just the way she says a line to me is just very believable. And that's a, yeah. that's a really hard thing to do as an actor. Yeah. That's what I mean by like, she just like, you just don't, you don't see her acting. At yeah. least I don't like, I just don't see the, the acting. I just see her reacting and being, um, that's really hard. I mean, as for somebody like me, who's a total ham and self-conscious and always sees himself acting like to see somebody do that. It just, I'm always kind of awestruck. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Um, I want to talk a little bit about that end when, you know, I was talking about the movie sort of gaining momentum and the chaos. And then it really culminates uh, when Lonnie doses, uh, what are they? FB, they're not FBI. What are they? Are they? They're tobacco, fire, oh, okay. alcohol and firearms, whatever that. Yeah. A- ATF. Um, yeah. When they dose him with LSD and the, the, 
the table scene is getting kind of funny. And, you know, if you, the first time you see it, you don't really notice, but he starts right. coming on at the table and he, he's just <laughs> sort of reacting and sort of looking at things and shaking his head a little bit. <laughs> but once you've seen it, you sort of key in on him in that scene. And it's just, I mean, Richard Jenkins is just amazing in everything he's in. Yeah. But from that moment on, some of the funnier drug writing, uh, as far as just actual lines that people might say that I've seen in movies. And he plays it really, Richard Jenkins plays being on an acid trip really well. Like that's a hard, I think I, I've never tried it, but I think that's a really hard thing to do as an actor, you know, to be like, probably so. Yeah. To just like, right. Be keyed into <laughs> that and have it be believable. And you see him like struggling to make sense of the moment and being like, I'm arresting you. <laughs> But still clearly, in, like, part of him is there, part of him isn't there. It's great. It's just great. Yeah, the, the, um, the very first thing he says... Uh, is this a musical table? Is this a musical table? <laughs> and he has his <laughs> ear down. <laughs> and when you watch it for the first time, and like, I'm trying to remember the first time, I was like, oh, shit, this is amazing, like, where this is headed. Uh, and, you know, one of the great music cues of all time, and I'm no Grateful Dead fan, but... When when trucking is playing and you can't catch the wind and he's running through the desert, it's just one of the great moments in movie yeah. history to me. And you know it's like eight hours later. You know it's he's been going through this for so long. Yeah. Because he, he like quadruple dosed him or something, three or four. Two and a half tabs. Oh, two and a half tabs. <laughs> I'm sorry, I put window pane. <laughs> we always laugh at that that line. I mean, On your quail. Yeah, on your quail. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, what can you say about him and this in any comedy that you can watch? I mean, I've probably seen this movie 10 times and my wife and I watched it last night and laughed throughout the entire thing like it was the first time we'd seen it. Well, what's great is when, you know, the first time you watch something, you laugh because of the, the story unfolding and, you know, you're, you're experiencing it the way the characters are, you're seeing it for the first time. But then on subsequent viewings, you start to pick up everything that everybody's doing person by person. And yeah, the, those, those moments are always really fun because you feel like, oh, I'm in on a secret club. Like I understand right. something about this film um, that's deeper than just what I would have seen on a first viewing. Yeah. And it ends up being a very sweet sort of uh, story too. And, but he doesn't hit you over the head with it. I think he could have been a lot more, um, saccharine about the whole thing with uh, the character realizes that, you know, his own family is his real family and all that mm -hmm. stuff. But I think he just handled it just in a pitch perfect way, how he doled that out. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't, yeah, he definitely doesn't knock you on the head with it. He's just like, yeah, but, I mean, that's, that is the ultimate realization and it's lovely. And it's not just, the Ben Stiller, Patricia Arquette family. Like it's, it's all the families are, those are the, those, those, those are the people that, you know, they're stuck with for better or for worse that they're, and, and, you know, it feels like for all of them, it's for the better. Like you're just seeing different models of relationships and, and understanding that every marriage, they say in the film, every marriage is fragile. Yeah. Um, and he's just showing you all the different ways they can be. Yeah. And the, the, I think the little, sometimes it's the sort of little decisions you make as a filmmaker 
can really glue it together. And I think in this case, it's the naming of the baby. They mm-hmm. throw that out at the beginning. It's a great little setup. Then it comes around at the end and it's just such a nice little bookend, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just Very a really thing. well-constructed script. I have one final line that I'm going to throw on you. Well, two. <laughs> the, the conversation between Lily Tomlin and Alan Alda with the uh, do spastic colon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she goes, I'll do reflux. I'll do reflux. <laughs> yeah. And but what I love is like, you're seeing her consider it. Like you're seeing, like you're seeing the gears tumble in her mind. She's like thinking about which thing she's going to do. Uh-huh. She's like, she's got a little Rolodex <laughs> of stories that she can go through. Okay. Right. She's going to do reflux. And it, and it's great. <laughs> All right. I'll do reflux. I'll do reflux. So great. Uh, and then at the end with Richard Jenkins, um, you know how his story culminates, he's standing there in his sport coat and his underwear and, uh, still flying and says, uh, I had an experience. I resisted at first and then it evolved and it continues to evolve. <laughs> <laughs> and you get the sense like he's not going back. Like he took his trip uh-huh. and he arrived at a destination and you feel like, Oh yeah, good. <laughs> we, we like you at this new destination. So great. Uh, well, thanks man. I appreciate you coming on and picking this great movie for me to watch again. Um, and appreciate your time. Oh yeah. My pleasure. It was really fun. And everyone should go out and get, uh, a better man, a mostly serious letter to my son. Uh, any other books you want to plug or all of them? Um, you know, Frankenstein is good. I'm reading that right now. <laughs> if you haven't read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, it's good. You know what my wife said the other day? What? I was kind of throwing that old dumb joke at her. I said, you know, Frankenstein is the doctor. And she said, well, who was the robot? <laughs> <laughs> so I've been giving her shit about that for three weeks now. <laughs> That's funny. The robot. Uh, all right, man. Thanks a lot. And, uh, and I'll talk to you soon. Okay. My pleasure. Thanks, Chuck. Bye. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. He was, uh, he's a great guy and uh, super nice, super nice dude. Very kind of him to uh, take some time out to, uh, to talk about flirting with disaster and his career. So much fun talking about all that state stuff um, to get to ask him listener questions. That's a, that's a new thing that I really enjoyed. I think I'll do more of that. Uh, and I just loved how open he was and about the uh, talking about the state. I, I wasn't quite sure. Sometimes people don't like to talk about that stuff. And he was very generous with his answers and with his honesty and with his time. So big thanks to Michael Ian Black. Go out, get his book, A Better Man, a mostly serious letter to my son, or check out uh, children's books that he's uh, written. Uh, they're all great. And he's a, he's a wonderful writer as well as actor and comedian. So uh, big thanks to him. And thank you guys for listening. And we'll see you next week. Movie Crash is produced and written by Charles Bryant and Noel Brown. Edited and engineered by Seth Nicholas Johnson and scored by Noel Brown here in our home studio at Ponce City Market, Atlanta, Georgia for iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch, so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com. Com.com slash compatibility.
This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.